Hello and welcome to this podcast from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is David Crystal, probably the best-known linguist working in the UK today, and certainly the most prolific. David's output ranges from encyclopedias and reference works to academic studies and even a memoir. His latest book is called A Little Book of Language, and is aimed particularly at young teenagers. But I think it would entertain and inform anyone with an interest in the myriad aspects of language that it covers. When we met, I began by suggesting that one way of grasping how much our attitudes to and knowledge of language have changed is to reflect on what a little book of language published a century ago would have been like. Well, yeah, certainly the last hundred years is a, a pretty critical period, really. This time, a century ago, there was no linguistics in the modern sense of the word, really. There was comparative philology, philology, the study of the history of language, which was mainly the study of old literary texts and the way the written language has changed over the centuries. A lot of interest in the languages of the world, trying to group them into families and all of that. But the study of the spoken language and a whole range of varieties of the spoken language and thinking about language from the point of view of its presence amongst us and what it does, not just to communicate meaning but to express our identities and all of this. This is all a 20th century thing and linguistics as a subject grew out of that kind of initial curiosity about how the living language works. I mean that's the contrast, dead languages before living languages now. And uh, very important in any introductory book on language, therefore, to avoid taking sides, to, to point out that both sides are important. You have to have a historical perspective and the written language and all that sort of thing, and you have to have a modern perspective with the spoken language and all that sort of thing. And so getting that balance is uh, is absolutely critical, but it's a balance that came after the 19th century was over, and indeed after much of the 20th century was over. You, you know, in the 21st century, we can see that both trends are Co-equal. And presumably the notion of good language and bad language or right and wrong were things which were much more prescriptive 100 years ago and now there's a much more descriptive attitude to it. That was a big change in the 20th century. Yes, the, uh, the, the, the prescriptive attitudes towards language that there was a right and a wrong, which meant that all non-standard versions of a language were pathetic, uh, all regional dialects and so on were inferior and all of this sort of thing. That was an attitude that only came in fairly recently, you know, the middle of the 18th century. It's only a couple of hundred years old, but it then grabbed everybody. And since that time in schools, mainly, when I went to school, for example, I was taught all these rules about right and wrong and and right. And these days, I think we've got a, a more balanced perspective. It is important that there are that children learn the standard form of the of their language so that they can communicate efficiently in it, and so on and so forth. Nobody's knocking that. But at the same time, we've learned to respect all the other varieties of the language that are around, and regional dialects, regional accents, and all the non-standard forms of English are seen to have a role in a full communicative life as we have now. And so, current trends in school are very definitely to try to get across to kids the extraordinary richness of a language, the the many varieties that there are, and all the different attitudes that there are to it, keeping standard language as centre stage, because that is so important for them, but at the same time, not getting them to be, to knock everything else, that that they should value the variety of uh, accents and dialects and so on that exist. And... That's one, another one of the things you have to get right when you're writing a book for kids, that you have to get this balance. You don't want, on the one hand, to give the impression that standard English isn't important, or standard French, or whatever it might be. 
On the other hand, you want to wean them away from this traditional concept that regional accents and dialects are somehow inferior, or that people who speak them are sort of thick or something. Yeah, the the book is very sensitive to context, isn't it, and making readers aware of the fact that they probably already use different kinds of language in different situations instinctively. That's a very important point, yes. Um, When kids go to school, they are taught at the very beginning the differences between speech and writing because they learn to read and write and they realize suddenly that the written language is very different from the spoken language. But nobody has to teach them that there are such things as as different styles of speech or for that matter different styles of writing because they've heard and seen these uh, from as early as age, uh, the third year of life. They've encountered different styles, you know, parents telling their kids off for speaking with their mouth full or for swearing or for saying she when they shouldn't and you know don't say that it's rude all that sort of thing they've yeah. gradually learned that there are these different acceptabilities and different appropriatenesses there is a place time and a place for every use of language when they get to school and learn to read and write they learn that lesson even more so and now the teachers start telling them about how to write essays and how they shouldn't put little stories and how they shouldn't put colloquialisms into it and they're developing their sense of style all the time and It is partly a matter of instinct, but it is also partly a matter of training because there there are just so many variations in language that they have to master. And this situation is getting more complicated rather than less as time goes by because now that the internet has come along, a whole new range of varieties of language are now available to kids uh, and to adults too, of course. And we've all got to learn to manage these things and manage them efficiently and learn that The abbreviations you put into your mobile phone, for example, are not going to be appropriate if you're writing a formal letter of inquiry for a job. And all of this, lots of kids assimilate without any trouble at all. But a stubborn minority of kids do have difficulty seeing the point. And so there is still a need for a curriculum that manages, that teaches children how to manage these different varieties. I wondered if when you were the age of the the young readers that this book is, is written for, were you already fascinated by language? And if, if so, what was it about language that fascinated you then? I certainly was. And the reason is quite clear, uh, because I was brought up in a bilingual area in North Wales, where there was Welsh and there was English. And there was English spoken at home. My family did not speak Welsh at home, but on the street it was there. And I remember at a very early age, in my third or fourth year, being puzzled about why I could understand you, but I can't understand you. What's going on here? You know, this was a real puzzle to me. Slowly it got worked out because kids would tell me and kids who spoke Welsh would teach me bits of Welsh and you learned that there were many different ways of communicating. When you went to school, of course, you learned the language as a second language in the classroom. And then gradually, as you went through school, especially secondary school, other languages came along. You know, I learned French and Greek and Latin and so on. And then you, you became aware of the of the importance of multilingualism as a phenomenon. So I think that's the idiosyncrasy of my own background. These days, I think everybody is aware of multilingualism as a phenomenon, partly because of the media and and the fact that you see these things on television so much and on the radio and on the internet, of course, especially these days, but also because the, the existence of immigration in all countries has suddenly upped the ante as far as levels of multilingualism are concerned. I mean, there are 400 languages spoken in London. 
let alone the numbers in other cities. And so you can't avoid the existence of, of multilingualism. And therefore, one of the reasons for uh, writing a book of this kind is, is perhaps to give kids an informed background about why multilingualism exists, how to cope with it, how to deal with it, how to interact with it, how to make themselves a little multilingual, even if the curriculum doesn't allow you to do so because they're not teaching languages as much as they should at secondary level. Nonetheless, you can go out and do your own language learning. Once you'd um, accepted the, the task of writing this book or the challenge of writing this book, how did you decide what aspects of language you were going to open up for, for young readers? This is the most difficult question of all. I have uh, worked on the language of young teenagers before. Some 20 or so years ago, I collaborated with a teacher on writing a series of information books for children of age 10, 11, 12. So I knew the language levels that were likely to make a book accessible to kids. Also, um, having talked to, to, to school children quite a lot over the years, I knew the sorts of subjects that interest them. You only have to look at an advanced level syllabus, for example, in English language, and you see the topics that teachers and examiners feel are motivating and at the right level for kids, like children's language acquisition and things of that kind. So I know all of that. And so I thought it would be dead easy to assimilate all of that and to write a, uh, a rhetoric which would take kids through all the different aspects of language, presented at the right linguistic level, no problem. Well, I did the draft and then I thought I'd better just check this out. So I got a 12-year-old to read my draft and this was a most salutary experience because I suddenly realised that my mindset was quite a long way away from the mindset of a modern 12-year-old, 13-year-old, that sort of area. And I'll give you some examples. When I was writing the, uh, the section on pseudonyms, uh, the names that people adopt other than their own real name, uh, and I thought, I'll put in my favourite examples of pseudonyms, like John Wayne, you see, who is, uh, you know, it's not his real name, Michael Caine, you know, people like this. Uh, when I approached the 12-year-old, I said, do underline anything you don't understand or anything that you find difficult or concepts that aren't familiar to you. She underlines John Wayne. I, I couldn't believe it. I said to her, do, do you not know who John Wayne is? She says, no. You've never seen Stagecoach? You, you know, no. <laughs> you know, what's this all about? I suddenly realized that there is a big difference. You know, let alone more sophisticated things like maybe a reference to the uh, to the Bi some you know story in the Bible or anything of that kind, which some kids would know but many kids would not. Here was a who I thought was a icon that everybody would understand. And no, I had to replace that with you know more modern pseudonyms like David Tennant and Madonna <laughs> and so on. So that was the shock, really, the the difference in the kind of encyclopedic worldview that I was taking for granted. I, I was writing the book, I think, at the right level in language and, and at the right level in terms of topics in language. But when it came to the examples, I realised that there was something I had to learn. Towards the end of the book, you look to the future and speculate on some of the, the changes that the readers of this book will see in the course of their lifetimes and indeed in the next 10 years. And one of the areas you pick out is communication with machines, machines talking to us and us talking to machines. This is a subject that it's so difficult to predict the future of because the technology is evolving so rapidly. 
I mean, we're we're recording this in the middle of uh, a month, uh, February, or beginning of a month, where there's been an announcement about from Google about having a, a, a phone which will automatically translate between you and me. If you were speaking French to me and I was speaking English to you, uh, then we'd understand each other by, we'd go through a piece of software and we'd hear each other in the other language, a sort of babelfish of A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, this is a couple of years off and there is some skepticism about how what sort of quality it's going to be. Uh, myself, I'm very, very surprised if it's going to be efficient, but you never know. And this is the sort of thing that's happening. I mean, who who would predict, who can possibly predict what's going to happen next as far as technology is concerned? Even far, you know, the whole internet thing is really only 20 years old. And who would, who would have predicted 11 years ago, uh, Google, you know, or mobile or text messaging, Twitter is only 2006, Facebook is 2004 or whatever it is, you know, that it's all so recent and each one of these new technologies is offering extraordinarily new perspectives for communication. So I think it is important that everybody and the kids in particular that are using this book will develop a sense of the movement of language, of, of how language evolves and particularly these days in relation to technology and to see what the problems are. I mean, the problems are, are obvious that uh, you, you get a piece of equipment like um, a voice activated um, washing machine or answering phone or, or uh, sat nav. And will it understand you? And the answer is sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. So why not? And the answer is because sometimes it can't cope with your regional accent or it can't cope because you're speaking too fast. And you suddenly begin to realize the strengths and the weaknesses of talking to machines were a long way off the, um, the, the scenario of 2001 and how the computer talking to Dave uh, about how things are. Uh, that's a long, long way. A lot of people think that, you know, that's around the corner, but it isn't. It is a long, long way away. But so getting a sense of how far we are along that road towards conversations with uh, robots is, I think, an important aspect of this whole business. David Crystal. His Little Book of Language is published in hardback at the end of this month. You'll find full details about the book at blackwell.co.uk. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.